Uh, This morning is our penultimate Sunday in our Church Under Fire series. Uh, We've been addressing the seven greatest threats to the church today. And I mentioned last week that these first six threats kind of form contrasting pairs for us as Christians. We're uh, constantly seeking to live in this tension between two poles or extremes. You take an issue like knowledge, on the one hand, we don't want to be ignorant. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we'd be sanctified, the truth of God's word. On the other hand, we don't want to fall prey to the trap of intellectualism either, of confusing our knowledge about God with knowing God. And uh, so we, we live in the middle. And you take the issue of dogmatism, our, uh, our firmness to our uh, doctrinal statements. We, we must be absolutely uncompromising as believers when it comes to the non-negotiables of the Christian faith, yet we also need to be able to distinguish between the core issues and second tier or even third tier issues and avoid being divisive on these matters where believers can have genuine differences of opinion. And you take this last kind of issue of activity. And so last week we We're in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus warned us against being underactive, comfortable Christianity, and he called us to take up our cross and follow him. This morning in Luke chapter 10, he's going to caution us against overactivity and the threat of busyness. Busyness is defined as the quality or condition of being overly busy, lively but meaningless activity. See if this resonates with any of you this morning. Wake up by 6 a.m., do a quick devotional while you get the coffee going so you can make it to the gym by 6.40 and get a quick workout in and then get back home in time to shower, get dressed, get the kids breakfast and get their lunches packed and dropped off at school by 8.10 so that you can get to the office by 8.30. You spend most of the morning uh, responding to your inbox and voicemail, putting out unexpected fires that come up. So you have to push Four or five things from your morning to-do list to the afternoon means you'll take a working lunch to catch up, call your husband, see if he can pick up the the kids from after-school sports so that you can stay a half hour late and finish up. As a trade-off, you'll run by the store for grocery shopping for dinner. Then you realize en route to the store you need to swing by the bank too, and you've got to pick up your husband's dry cleaning before his big meeting tomorrow, and so you just grab carry-out instead over dinner, You barely get time to ask the kids about their busy schedules and days before they're asking to be excused and go finish homework or play, and by the time you get the dishes cleared, it's nearly time to sign on for virtual life group. 75 minutes later, you let the dog out, you check on the kids before bed, you go through your own bedtime ritual before you finally collapse in bed, exhausted, but assuring yourself that at least tomorrow should be a lighter day. That's a really busy day. I hope that's not typical, normal for too many of you here this morning. Perhaps the specifics differ. You change go to work for teach homeschool or swap out bank and dry cleaning for Target and gas station, but the point remains we are busy people, aren't we? We have a chronic busyness problem. You know how I know that busyness is a societal norm, cultural idol for us. It's because those of you who aren't all that busy, who didn't necessarily resonate with my little story there, um, what did you feel as I was telling it? Did you 
feel relieved that you don't have to deal with that level of stress in your day-to-day life? Did you feel sad for your brothers and sisters here who, for whom that does describe more of a normal day for them? I'm willing to bet for most of you, if anything, you may have actually felt a little guilty that I wasn't describing your typical day, that you're not that busy. Like, man, what's wrong with me? I must not be as important as whoever Pastor Will was just describing. And why is busyness such a threat anyway? I mean, what's so wrong about keeping busy? After all, doesn't Ephesians 5.16 exhort us to make the best use of the time? We don't get forever here on this earth. I want to make a difference. I think the short answer is that there is nothing wrong with being busy. We all go through busy seasons of life, a busy day here and there throughout your week. But there's a lot wrong with busyness, with the state of being perpetually over busy, being swept up in lively but meaningless activity. The danger with that is that it will distract from and detract from and ultimately destroy your intimacy with God, and it will crush your soul in the process. So friends, if that is you this morning, as Matt sort of already primed us for this, I want to invite you to do something with me right now. This may feel a little weird for some of you, especially those of you who struggle with busyness, but it's very biblical. Psalm 119.97, David says, Oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all the day, and I want to invite you to meditate on God's word with me this morning for the next 30 seconds or so. For 30 seconds, you have no responsibilities, no to-dos, no competing demands on your time other than to simply meditate on God's word. And here's the verse that I'd like us to sit with, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You got that? Would you say that with me one time to make sure we've all got it, okay? Let's say it together. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Good. I invite you, you can close your eyes if you want. You can sit up, breathe in deeply, hold it, repeat that, uh, those words of the Lord silently to yourself as you exhale, preach that to yourself this morning. Hear Jesus saying those words to your tired, busy soul. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Can we give it a try? I'll give you 30 seconds right now.
invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Would you hear the word of the Lord? Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. It's convicting. Father, we confess this morning, like Martha, we are quick to fill our lives, our schedules, our time. Anxious and busy with many things, to get distracted from the one truly necessary thing in this life. Father, so many of us come here this morning, even in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a, a time and a prolonged season where you've tried to force us to, to slow down. We come here. Our hearts are, are busy. Our souls need to be quieted this morning. We need to hear your still small voice whisper to us, be still, know that I am God. We need to hear Jesus invite us to come so that he can give us rest. Father, would you make that our heart's desire this morning? simply rest with you, to be with you for our good and for your glory we pray in Jesus name, amen you may be seated again uh, Luke chapter 10 is, is the first mention of this beloved family, Martha and Mary and Lazarus in the gospels but we hear about this family in John chapters 11 and 12 as well in John 11 Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and then in chapter 12 Jesus comes back and stays at their house again the week before his crucifixion and John relays some pretty telling information about these characters and the two sisters in particular in those chapters after Lazarus died uh, Mary was sitting in a puddle of her own tears while Martha rushed out to find Jesus fix it. When uh, Jesus instructed them to roll the stone away from Lazarus's tomb, Mar all Martha could think about was, was the smell. Practical stuff. In John chapter 12, when Mary was anointing Jesus's feet before his death and his burial, Martha was once again busy serving, we hear. She's a consummate, type A, task-oriented. If you're into the Enneagram voodoo, she's, she's a type 3 achiever. 
Martha is a doer. And here's what uh, we need to recognize right from the outset about it. It is not bad to be a doer. A type A, task-oriented, number three achiever. God made Martha that way. And he's made some of you that way too. I know that because I can see your legs bouncing all throughout the sermon on Sundays, right? It's like your body is rejecting the very notion of sitting still for 40 whole minutes. If I look closely, I can see your notes from up here in the pulpit. As if you didn't have enough on your to-do list already from Monday through Friday, you come on Sundays and then you leave here with even more work to keep you busy spiritually the following week. God made you that way and God loved you for it. It's not a bad thing. But achievers, here's what we do need to, to, to listen and learn from the examples of Mary and Martha this morning. Here's, here's the lesson in a nutshell. That Jesus cares more about your being with him than your doing for him. Jesus cares more about your being with him this morning than your doing for him. Again, we praise God for achievers. Achievers make the world go round. And they help the kingdom of God advance too, by the way. You don't make many disciples by sitting around Jesus' feet all day long. And so there is a balance here to be struck. Again, attention. Jesus does call us to do stuff. Share the gospel. Make disciples. Care for the poor. Show hospitality like Martha is trying to do here. Those are active verbs. And they're not mere suggestions. They are commands from Jesus himself. But you know what else Jesus commands? Two things, actually, if you want to just boil it down and make it really simple this morning. Jesus said he could sum up the entire Old Testament law and the prophets in just two commands. You remember them? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like it, achievers. Like it. But it's not the first, and we better not get the two confused. Do not confuse, achiever, your loving your neighbor, your doing for Jesus, your caring for people the way that he cared for them, and yes, the way that he calls you to care for them as well. But don't confuse that with loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. First John chapter 4 makes it really clear. You, if you do, that you do not truly love God if you don't love people. If you get the first commandment right, then the second will necessarily follow. But the problem for us achievers is that it is entirely possible to love people without actually loving God, or at least to mess up the order of priority. And as we're going to see this morning with Martha's example here, the sad thing is that when we do that, when we try to do for Jesus without it coming naturally out of the overflow of hearts that have been with him, when we try and love others with a love that we have not first received from the Lord, from having ourselves spent time with him, that ends up, what ends up happening is that we try and get our sense of identity and purpose and joy from doing for rather than from being with. And when we inevitably then 
leave feeling empty and exhausted and frankly a little unappreciated by all those people we've been so busy serving, we end up actually resenting them for failing to give us the joy and purpose and meaning that we were searching desperately for because we were never intended to find it in them and in serving them. We were intended to find it in Jesus alone. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. We serve because he first served us, but now we've gotten it all backwards. And so how do we avoid this threat of busyness, of becoming Marthas and losing the forest for the trees? Six ways. Six ways I see here in the text. Number one, we need to be prone to reproof. You know, we all know what they say. The first step is what? Admitting you have a problem, right? You can't solve a problem that you don't know you have. We've got to start by acknowledging our own heart's tendency towards sin. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we start there, but we can't stop there. Because our heart is prone to wander, we have to actively combat that with a proneness toward reproof. To be reproved is to be criticized or corrected, especially gently. And as Christians, we ought to love it. Love it because Proverbs 6.23 tells us the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. And so Proverbs 15.5 says, whoever heeds reproof then is prudent, is wise. Verse 32, he's intelligent. By contrast, Proverbs 12.1, whoever hates reproof is stupid. And ultimately, Proverbs 29.1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And so, as believers, we ought to welcome reproof. The Proverbs goes on you know, to call a timely word of reproof a gift of gold. It's a kindness to us because it's an opportunity to address that, that ongoing sin in our life that holds us back from life to the fullest. It's like when your friend lets you know after lunch that you have a little bit of food stuck in your teeth. You don't get mad at them. Like, how dare you point that out? No, you thank them. Gosh, you saved me from looking like a fool the rest of the afternoon. Thank you. We ought to approach reproof the same way. You just saved me from living like a fool the rest of this week. If I will be humble and listen. That's where Martha, I think, first went wrong here in verse 39. The story opens in verse 38 with Jesus entering Bethany and Martha welcoming him into her home. So far, so good. Wonderful, as a matter of fact. Martha is the perfect example here of the kind of person of peace that Jesus had in mind back in verse 6 of this chapter. Martha's first instinct to welcome, feed, to house, to care for the Lord. That's a beautiful one. God made her that way. But then we read in verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, when Martha walks into the living room from the kitchen and sees Mary sitting there, now she's got a choice to make, doesn't she? She can really go in one of three directions at this point. Number one, she can realize that it really is more important to be with Jesus than to do for him. She can, she can acknowledge her own tendency towards sin 
to, to, to do for instead of be with. She can learn from Mary's example. She can be reproved. She can take off her apron and just sit down and listen to Jesus. Or number two, she might conclude that God has just wired her differently from Mary, that maybe she is called to serve while Mary is called to listen, and therefore Martha could choose to serve joyfully. Or number three, she can double down and she can insist that the priority here has got to be taking care of Jesus. After all, he's traveled a long way. He's got to be hungry and tired. And therefore, she can convince herself that Mary is just being selfish and lazy. She's the center. Now, based on, Mary's, on Martha's attitude in verse 40, I think her choice is clear. She chooses a third option. But she could have avoided this whole embarrassing encounter ever ending up in God's timeless word for us to read for all of eternity, if the moment she had seen Mary sitting there, if she had just stopped in humility and asked Jesus himself, Jesus, hey, I would love to listen to your teaching too. Should I come and sit? Or should Mary and I both go cook and then we can all listen over dinner? Or she could have done that, but she didn't. Why? Because she forgot that she's a sinner who might actually not have it all figured out and she might need reproof from time to time. She assumed that she was right, that Mary was wrong, and moreover, Martha assumed that she knew even better than Jesus did what was best in this situation. She ends up blaming him. The biblical doctrine of total depravity Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It means that we've got to flip the American judicial notion of the presumption of innocence on its head. When it comes to our own hearts and our own motives, friends, we should probably assume we're guilty until proven otherwise. That you and I are sinful enough that we should assume that we're going to struggle with sin for the rest of our lives and we're going to need regular reproof. Especially when it comes to something like our busyness, our, our, our proneness to elevate other things to the position of primacy that's supposed to be reserved for Christ alone. So the first step here to avoiding busyness is to confess that, to confess our tendency toward prioritizing other things over Jesus and to assume that we are going to need course corrections from time to time. That's number one. Number two. We need to conform to the Lord's paradigm, not societies. The Lord's paradigm, his methodology, his way of thinking. Here's what I mean. Martha is paying more attention here to traditional first century Jewish norms than she is to Jesus' own direction. Commentator Kent Hughes explains, it was unheard of in first century Judaism for a rabbi to allow a woman to sit at his feet. Later rabbinic tradition declared, may the words of the Torah be burned, they should not be handed over to a woman. Now clearly, Jesus rejected such an unbiblical regressive attitude outright, and Mary took her cues from Jesus, not from culture. 
but Martha played right into society's norms. When it comes to busyness this morning, friends, you and I have to decide whose example, whose standards, whose norms we are going to conform to, societies or God's. Society will tell you to go, 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 24-7. If you want to get ahead in this life, you better never stop. God says, actually, I'm going to design you to require sleep just to remind you that you are not all that indispensable. I'm going to make 24-7 literally physically impossible for you. And then I'm actually going to go beyond that and carve out one of those days of the week, the Sabbath, and just command you to rest and test you and, 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 and see will you humble yourself and allow yourself to be reminded that the world goes on even if you take a day off. A wise friend had to reprove me once when he caught me checking my work email on my day off, he said, what do you think is going to happen if you leave that in the inbox until Monday? Like, are you afraid the sun's not going to come up tomorrow? And what does it say about your view of God? That he was able to take a day off. He deemed that important enough to do, to make time for. But when it comes to your busy day, your to-do list, your inbox, no, that can't wait. Is your activity more important than God's? Romans 12.2 exhorts us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and his will on this issue, on resting and busyness, and not being a workaholic who's addicted having things to do, it's quite clear in his word. The question is, will we listen and conform ourselves to the paradigm of the surrounding, do more constantly culture, or to the Lord's paradigm? Trust that it's good for us. Number three, we must learn to prioritize properly. If we're going to rest, if we're going to take a day off, if we're going to slow down, it's going to require us to learn to prioritize properly. Mary was listening to Jesus, but we hear in verse 40a, but Martha was distracted with much serving. The Greek word for distracted there, perispao, literally means to be pulled away. It has the connotation of, of something else of lower priority competing for and usurping and stealing your attention. Distractions are relative. It's all about context, right? Social media may be a distraction while you're at work. It pulls you away from a job you're being paid to do. But using it in moderation to connect with your friends later that evening may be totally fine. It can be appropriate. My kids are the most important thing in the world to me. But on Sunday mornings, when I'm last minute reviewing over my sermon notes before I come preach, even they can be a distraction. So it's all relative. It's all about things being in their proper context and quantity and quality. And the context here in Luke chapter 10 is that Jesus, the Son of God, has just walked in the door. And now he's sitting in your living room teaching, telling parables that Christians will be pouring over, devoting their lives to studying for thousands of years to come, and you're too busy sweeping the kitchen floor to come stop and listen. 
One of the commentaries I read this week mentioned that the word perispao, combined with Martha's anger and resentment toward Mary, gives us the impression that she actually wanted to be listening to Jesus, but she felt like she had to serve. Like the dinner's not going to cook itself, Jesus. Your bed isn't going to make itself. I imagine Jesus maybe having to gently remind her. Remember when Jesus had to remind the Pharisees that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? I can imagine him saying the same of to-do list here to Martha. Martha, chores were made for people, not people for chores. We need to ask ourselves this morning, friends, do you manage the tasks in your life or do they manage you? And secondly, do you prioritize those tasks properly? We need to give Martha some credit here in her defense. If you're going to be overloaded by anything, doing anything, at least she's staying busy serving the Son of God, cooking for him, cleaning for him. That is honestly more than probably most of us can say this morning. I've sort of framed this whole discussion as doing for Jesus versus being with Jesus, Martha versus Mary. But the reality is that for most of us, a lot of the stuff that you and I stay so busy with has very little to do with either, does it? You think back to the example I opened with. I mentioned a quick morning devotional. I mentioned evening life group. The vast majority, though, of our, our busyness, work, and kids, and meals, and errands, and scrolling, and streaming. And again, it's not that these things are bad inherently. Well, not all of them, anyway. Jesus himself worked as a laborer for most of his life before he ever began his ministry. He, you know, you think of kids, family. I mean, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and he made time to just play with them. He made time to eat with his friends. I assume he even ran errands. He didn't scroll or stream. I'm not sure he would have if he'd been born in the year 2000. We can debate that one, the relative merits of some of those distractions that we find ways to stay busy with. But regardless, he always kept his priorities straight. Good things never got in the way of the best thing for Jesus. Intimacy with his heavenly father. And if they ever even threatened to, what did he do? Get up, he walked to the other side of the mountain, leave everybody so he could be alone and pray, right? The disciples would wake up. Where's Jesus? Where'd he go? Just sail to the other side of the lake just to be alone with his heavenly father. Friends, in what areas of your life this morning are your priorities out of whack? A wise friend, once again, a lot of reproof needed here, clearly. Uh, Reprove me. Every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. Which of your yeses this morning are causing you to say no to time with Jesus? Maybe they're good things. Work, family, errands, important things. There are lots of good, important things that deserve a proper portion of our time in this life. But as Jesus will tell us, only one thing is truly necessary. Is he your priority? Is he your priority? Number four, we need to repent 
of our pride. Repent of our pride, verse 40b. Pride is defined as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. Why didn't Martha just ask Mary to help her out in the kitchen in the first place? I think it's because deep down, Martha wanted to be the one to get credit for keeping such a great house. If it was truly just about getting the house cleaned and getting dinner prepped, if it was only about the task itself, she could have just asked Mary to pitch in from the start. They would have gotten it done twice as fast, right? Why didn't she? Because there is a self-sabotaging sequence of connected events unfolding here that every type A achiever knows all too well. It starts with this need to achieve. Need to achieve, which then leads to a refusal to delegate, to involve others, which ultimately, inevitably leads to burnout, and then finally to resentment. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Jesus, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Tell her, put her straight. But Mary does it to herself, doesn't she? Because achievers need to achieve. It's where we get our sense of identity and worth. I'm the preacher. That's who I am. That's what I do. That's who I am. I can't let you preach. Because then who would that make me? Martha can't let Mary play the role of perfect homemaker because that would leave Martha in an existential identity crisis. And so our unhealthy need, that drive to achieve, leads to a refusal to delegate out to others, which inevitably leads to burnout, our inability to keep all the balls juggling in the air at once, and then when they inevitably do come crashing down to the ground, our self-protective instinct then is to blame you and to resent you for not stepping in to save me for myself sooner. Even though Martha probably would have refused Mary's help even if she had offered. Why? What's the ultimate source fueling this drive to achieve in the first place? It's pride. Call it what it is. It's pride. It's an overinflated sense of self. Or perhaps, I want to suggest to you, even more frequently, it stems from insecurity. And insecurity is really just the other side of that same coin. Tim Keller defines pride not as thinking more of yourself, but as thinking of yourself more. And so whether you're full of yourself, pride, or you're totally insecure, the common thread is that you're always thinking about yourself. It's all about you. It's all about Mary. Achievers, we need to repent of our pride, our need to stay busy because we derive our identity and our worth from it. And instead, and here's where we finally get to the good news this morning, the good part, we, we bring it back in the love, Valentine's Day. Number five, we need to perceive Jesus' love for us. Stop and realize Jesus' love for you. How does Jesus respond to Martha? In verse 41, does he say, Hey, Martha, I desperately needed her reproof in that moment. And God, in his mercy, 
allowed me one of those rare moments in life where the scales fall off your eyes and you feel like you can finally see yourself accurately and receive a loved one's rebuke without putting up any kind of fight or defensiveness. I was cut to the core and I actually confessed out loud to Polly. I said, it's not that I don't like being with you and Elle. I love y'all. I think that I'm realizing that I'm afraid if I sit still for too long, I might be forced to actually look in the proverbial mirror and realize how much I hate myself. I stay busy because it distracts me from spending time with me. Friends, I don't want to presume to know anything about your heart and your motives for your busyness. But here's what I do know. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He'd rather be with you than be served by you. Do you know that you're enough for Jesus? Some of you need to hear that this morning. You are enough for Jesus. Not not you plus the good Christian deeds that you do to please him. Not the Instagram filtered version of your life, you on your best day with all the imperfections edited out. Not the future you that you are working so hard to achieve because you're convinced that he'll love you more if only you can. No, just you. You're enough for Jesus. Jesus could never love you any more than he does at this very moment. Do you believe that? That's good news. That is so good to tired, weary, busy souls struggling to achieve in order to get to some level. No. Jesus' love for you is unconditional. Who else has that kind of love for you? I'm sorry, I just ruined some of y'all's Valentines with your spouses, with your significant others, because compared to Jesus' love, your spouse's is garbage. (laughs) It's garbage. Your significant other, your parent, your best friend, the next closest person in the world to you loves you very conditionally, loves you very imperfectly. Only Jesus loves you like this. And when you perceive it, when you realize it, it really does tend to put all the other stuff that we stay so busy with in proper perspective. You know, they say that, and I've found it to be personally true, that you can't really just remove an idol from your life. It has to be replaced. Idols are kind of like Middle Eastern dictators in that way, and demons, by the way, that's Matthew twelve forty five. You can't just oust them, or you leave a vacuum, and that's how you end up with groups like ISIS or the Muslim Brotherhood stepping in. It's the same with idols in our hearts. They have to be replaced. The only way to fight that, that perpetual need for busyness, listen, Jesus is inviting some of you this morning to replace your busyness with his love for you. 
And I'm telling you that trade is a no-brainer. <laughs> it, is, it is no contest. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He loves you. Jesus is inviting you this morning, if you are tired of your busyness, to come to him. and He wants to give you rest for your weary soul. Will you do it? Will you allow him to do that for you? Will you, number six, in closing, will you passionately pursue Jesus? Here's the thing. Relationships are a two-way street, right? He has passionately pursued you. He went all the way to the cross to pursue you. That's how far his love took him for you. The question for you this morning is, will you remain a Martha, remain anxious and troubled about many things, or will you be a Mary? Will you recognize the one truly necessary thing and choose the good portion? God has promised us Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus loves you. You are enough for him. Do you love him? Is he enough for you? I pray that he is because he's more than enough. And until your heart finds its rest in him, it'll always be restless and busy, tired and worried. Amen. Let's pray.